Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Okay, for this episode, we wanted to talk about dynamic benchmarking in natural language processing. And to tell us more about dynamic benchmarking, we have with us Dua Keeler, who is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Your hosts today are Pradeep Dasigi, that's me, and uh, Alexis Ross, who is also at uh, AI2. Alexis. Hi, excited to be co-hosting this. So Dua has written lots of uh, papers about dynamic benchmarking, including one that was that recently appeared on Archive about uh, Dynaboard, which is an evaluation as a service platform, which we'll also be talking about now. But let's start by talking about Dynabench, uh, which is the platform which also includes Dynaboard. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Dynabench and what issues uh, with benchmarking in NLP it solves? Sure. Yeah. So the Dynabench is basically one big scientific experiment. That's how I like to think about it. It's a research platform where the goal is to see if we can rethink benchmarking in AI. And so we're starting with NLP, but the idea is to keep this very broad. And the basic idea is to just try to make everything as dynamic as possible. So benchmarks have lots of issues mostly because they're static. Uh, so what that means is that they can saturate. At some point, we surpass human performance, or we have other issues. So they might have biases or artifacts that we didn't know about at the time of collection, but that turn up later. And then we can't fix them anymore because it's static. So if we make this dynamic, we can fix a lot of the issues that we encounter when we're doing benchmarking. And one added advantage of doing it like that is that we get to measure the right thing, which is what we usually really care about in NLP, which is how do you interact with real humans? So rather than having a static test set and we're doing some IID evaluation on that test set, we're really putting humans and models together in the loop to have them talk to each other. And then we see how well the models fare. If they're doing a good job, that means that we're making good progress uh, in NLP. Great. Thanks for that overview. So a key idea here is, I guess, a couple of key ideas here, dynamic benchmarks and putting humans in the loop uh, of a benchmark or models in the loop of uh, benchmark creation along with humans. Can you walk us through the process and give us uh, a formal overview of uh, how exactly the process works? Sure. Yeah. So the idea is humans and models in the loop. Uh, I think if you're familiar with uh, thinking about adversarial processes, people would often have some sort of algorithm or model try to adversarially find mistakes that models make. And what we're doing here is slightly different because the adversary is not an algorithm or a model, it's actually another human. So a human is talking to a model and their job is essentially to find things that the model cannot yet do. And so if we keep doing this over time, the idea is that we, again, we get good metrics. So we see how well these models do. We also collect a lot of data that can then be used for training so that we get even better models, which we can then put back in the loop to see how well we're doing to collect even more data, et cetera, et cetera. So sort of built this virtuous cycle where we keep making faster progress in AI. Right. So to talk about more details here, does the test set remain the same across these rounds? Uh, is it just the training set and say the development that's changing? Can you talk about those specifics? Yeah. So we would be doing this over multiple rounds and every round has its own test set that comes out of it as a result. So what you can do is you can also reevaluate models on the old rounds, right? So I guess we can also talk about adversarial NLI uh, in a bit, but the basic idea there is that we collected it over three rounds. And for every round you're training on the previous round's training data, 
you keep the, the test data separate. And then what you want to optimize for is scoring well on this new round of data without sacrificing performance on the older rounds of data. And so this could be older rounds of data, or it could even be other data sets, right? So if we're doing natural language inference, we want to be good at adversarial natural language inference, but we want to stay good on uh, things like SNLI and multi-NLI. Okay, since you mentioned adversarial NLI, let's talk more about that. So what was the basic setup? I think I, I understood the idea of using or collecting data in multiple rounds using uh, models. So do these models take constant? Is it, are you training the same model over new data sets or are you also have, do you also have more powerful models across rounds? They in the paper, they change. And I think in the long term, that is the setup that we would want to have. So if you want to keep reevaluating the state of the art models, the state of the art obviously changes over time. So as better models come out, you want to try to find examples that fool these models rather than the old ones. So in the adversarial NLI paper, we start off with uh, just a single instance of BERT, and then we collect some data. We train new models on this data that was collected with BERT uh, to make it even better. But so around this time, Roberta was really found to be much better. So we switched the second round to Roberta. And instead of having a single instance type in that round, we're using a round robin ensemble, which means that we're not actually like aggregating all the predictions of different Roberta models, but we have a randomly picked Roberta model in the loop. So that's a round robin. And then in the third round where we have the same ensemble, but now it's trained on all the previous data. So also the data that comes out of the second round. And what we changed there is we evaluated on multiple domains. So one of the things that might be happening uh, with this process is if, and I think with NLP in general, is that we're overfitting a bit too much on easy domains like Wikipedia. And one easy way to make things harder is to get different domains. Right. So you said for the first round, you used the BERT model and that was trained on SNLI and NLI. And fever actually, but then turned into an NLI task. Okay. So, so you started out by training a model with, with existing data sets to build an initial NLI model and use that to collect the more data in an ad in an adversarial fashion. Exactly. Right. Yeah, the, the, the key idea basically was to try to find a model that was the state of the art at that point in time. So that would mean uh, something like BERT, which at that time was, was really very powerful, and then training it on basically all the data we had available at that point in time. And so you can see in the paper that that model actually performs really well on these old data sets. And so that is the starting point from which we started collecting these much harder challenge sets. Can you talk the or can you talk a little bit more about the process of trying to of the annotators trying to fool the models? Is it that the annotators are overgenerating and you pick you select the ones that the model is classified, or is it something like through annotating and seeing the model predictions, the annotators get an intuition for what is going to lead to a misclassification? Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, so maybe one important clarification is that while we we care about the model fooling questions. It's not that we're throwing away the questions or the examples that didn't fool the model. So those go into the training data because they can still be useful, right? So it would be a, a waste to throw them away. But in the validation and test set, there are only the questions that fool the, the model in the loop or the models in the loop. But uh, so the, the basic setup is for something like NLI is there, they have this interface that is custom built for this task. They're shown a context and we tell them, this is your target label. So you should try to generate something entailing in such a way that the model predicts contradiction or neutral. 
And then so people can play with the model and develop an intuition for the sort of mistakes that it makes. In the beginning, this feels very hard. I mean, people can try this themselves by going to dynabench.org and just checking it out. But after a while, I think once you get a knack at, at doing this, it actually becomes pretty easy still. So it's not that difficult to fool models because they have pretty well-known weaknesses still. I see. Interesting. Thank you. Right. So you mentioned that in the process, the annotators are shown contexts or uh, premises for NLI and they were asked to write hypothesis, right? So does this mean that the premises will remain the same? I mean, were these were the sampled from SNLI, MNLI or other keyword-like datasets? From uh, SNLI or multi-NLI. So they're separate passages or contexts or premises, whatever you want to call them, from Wikipedia in the first two rounds of NLI, but uh, they can come from anywhere, really. Uh, so the exact task setup on the Dynabench platform is actually determined by the task owners. So the platform is meant to be a research platform for the entire community. And so the, the tasks we're starting with, NLI, QA, hate speech, and sentiment, they're owned by academic researchers who, who can determine what the exact setup is. So the decision to keep things fixed right now and not allow people to edit passages or context, that's up to the task owners. And I think it would be very interesting to change this later and to also allow annotators to, to change uh, the context, right? So this would be quite easy to do from a, a web interface. Okay, I understand. Thanks. The other question I had about this process was the fact that about the fact that the models were changing. I understand your motivation in using a stronger model in subsequent rounds, but is that a requirement? Do you do you think at some point at some point you will not be able to find adversarial examples if you kept using the same model, which is just get, getting trained on your data? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so if that happens, that would be fantastic, I think, right? Because then we can just cover all the models and then we'll have solved all the problems by just keeping them in the loop. I don't know. So I, I do think that, I mean, this is a research platform, right? So there are lots of very interesting research questions to be asked and answered. And the one you're asking here is if you keep the model in the loop and it's always the same model, what happens? Does it maybe spiral out of control or does it have some sort of cyclical issues or do people really very heavily overfit on this particular model, making it not very useful for other models. So these are all very great questions, and I'm very interested in exploring them. I'm looking into a few of these questions myself with interns and other people. So yeah, I mean, I hope that as a field, we keep thinking about these issues because there are clear benefits to the approach, but there are also obvious caveats and, and possible objections that we need to keep in mind and try to address. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great that we have a platform for uh, trying to answer these uh, interesting research questions. I guess when I read these papers, one question I keep thinking of is we know that we are building harder data sets. And that, that's obvious given that the models are not doing very well. But it's, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint why exactly these uh, newer benchmarks are hard, right? For example, in your third round in, in the adversarial NLI pipeline, you said you sampled data from diverse domains, which were different from the uh, domains that you sampled from in the first two rounds. Right. So if uh, you if you're getting more and more adversarial examples from domains that are different, and which means that the models cannot handle these examples, is it because the reasoning involved in these newer examples hard, or is it just that the domain is different and so the models are just not trained enough in the new domain, right? I mean, do you have any intuitions there? I, I think either either case is interesting, right? So if models don't work in a different domain, then that is also something we want to fix. 
And so it could also be that a particular reasoning type is just poorly understood in a, in a different domain. So yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned about like what the ultimate cause is of the difficulty. So that doesn't really matter for the platform anyway, right? As long as it's difficult and as long as we can make progress by fixing these problems. So if one of our problems is that we cannot handle multiple domains, then we can fix that over time because this is a living benchmark where in the next few years, maybe we can develop a lot of uh, examples that are multi-domain so that we become more robust in that sense. Yeah, I have a couple more questions related to this, but I guess they're mostly related to distributional shift, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. I'll get back to this this point later. Can you give us a an overview of the high level trends that you see that you saw in the results in in the adversarial NNI paper? Do do you generally think that this experiment was successful and that you what what were the contrib- contributions of that project? Yeah, so I think I mean so one of the main insights was that we still haven't solved NLP. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people thought that we were getting close. And so if you actually have humans talk to these systems. It, yeah, it appears that that's not really the case. I think a useful way of thinking about this actually is we're getting better at the average case, right? But as a computer scientist, you also care about the worst case, especially if you want to deploy these models in production or in important situations where they have a real effect on people's lives. And they're, the worst case is, is ultimately what matters for, for deployment. So that is one of the things that we're measuring with this platform right? in the adversarial case. Can you give us a, an overview of the results, of the, the high-level trends of what you saw in the experiments? Yeah, so what we found in the NLI paper, and that actually also goes for other recent papers that we published. So we also published a, a sentiment analysis uh, data set called Dynascent, and we have this paper on doing the same for hate speech, and there's some other very good work on doing this in QA. And so in all of these settings, we find that if you do this over multiple rounds, the models get worse and worse. And so the data becomes harder and harder. Sort of the trend that you would expect to see where the models get better at solving a particular problem. Uh, so the, the data set itself becomes harder to solve for, for all models in, across the board. And so one other interesting thing we find, and, and so this is even necessarily the primary motivation, right? So this started really as an evaluation paradigm, but because we get all this data out of it, it would be stupid not to use it. So if you train on this data, one of the findings of the NLI paper is that you also do better on SNLI and multi-NLI. So you can really mix the data in smart ways. Obviously, you don't want to just train on adversarial data because then you get maybe too much of of a weird distribution out of it. But if you mix it in a smart way, then you can get a model that is really very good on both settings. Right. So when you get a model that's better on SNLI using using a combination of SNLI and ad- and the adversarial adversarially collected data. Right. So I guess one question I have there is, is, is that not kind of expected or is that, is that really a surprising result given that you have uh, more data, which also includes the original data set, right? I mean, is that... So that's not what I meant, right? So if you, if it's just more data, then obviously it will work better, right? So, but if you downsample to to keep sizes equal, then you still see that this this mix of data does better. Okay, I understand. Thanks. Right. So, so to summarize what you said, what and what I understood from the paper is that you when you keep training uh, models in in this in this adversarial setting over over multiple rounds, the Data that you collect from data rounds was harder for the earlier models, and the newer models are generally better on the earlier data sets. Right? 
Okay. So and uh, so, uh, the, so one interesting thing is that the the model error rate, so how many mistakes the model makes for for the average Turker, that goes down over time. So the models do get stronger and stronger, but the examples that we find they get harder and harder. So the the final round of uh, adversarial NLI, I think state of the art performance is still something like forty. That really is very very difficult for any existing model. Okay, okay, that makes sense. What is human performance on the the hard examples? In those later rounds. I don't remember actually. I don't know if we actually looked at it. So there, there is an interesting paper where we look at the different reasoning types. So this goes back to your question about different domains. So the paper is called Analyzing ANLI. And so uh, Adina, one of the collaborators on this project, she hand annotated the death sets of the three rounds. And you can really see different phenomena happening over time. I think it's a super interesting analysis. Yeah, it would be interesting to know how, how well humans do, I think, to see if, if it, yeah. Maybe an even more interesting experiment would be to have humans in the loop on both ends, right? So rather than having humans full models, maybe humans can fool other humans, and then we'll see what models can do with that data. And I believe you also had some experiments on out-of-domain datasets, like the, the hard examples in NLI and the stress test datasets. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, so, so we also evaluated the models on those. I never really know what to make of these datasets. I, I think they are very high variance. So it's sometimes not easy to say, to draw uh, real conclusions about what's going on there. Uh, so I think of them more as sort of like checklists, for example, right? So we just want to make sure that we can do a good job on that when we look at the models. So what we found is that if you train on this data, you also get better at these phenomena uh, measured by the stress test. But yeah, as I, as I said, I think that should come with the caveat where I don't know what they measure anyway. Okay. Are there any other trends? I mean, you mentioned your Dynascent work, and uh, I know that you have a couple of other adversarially collected datasets as well. In general, were there any trends, interesting trends in any of those other projects that are worth mentioning here and are different from what we saw in adversarial NLA? So uh, the Dynascent paper, I think, is interesting because we also look at uh, prompts. So sentiment is a different task, right? So in NLI and QA, you have a, a context or a passage or a premise, and you ask a question or you provide a hypothesis, right? But for sentiment, you just have a piece of text and it's just raw text classification. And it's the same for hate speech. So then it becomes much harder for people to come up with examples from scratch, right? So one of the things we found is that if you give them a prompt, so something to start them thinking in their creative process, because ultimately what we want to achieve is for our annotators to be creative and to find cool, interesting examples. If you give them a prompt, then they will do a much better job coming up with good examples. So I thought that was very interesting. On hate speech, we also looked at doing things like uh, minimum changes, minimal, so like counterfactual examples, essentially, where if you have a hate speech example and you change a couple of small things, that should change the label. And so Dynebench is a platform that also supports that mode, uh, which you get the, the additional benefit that you can immediately check what the model thinks of those examples. Great, thanks for that uh, uh, summary. Related to prompts, did you see similar trends in adversarial data collection with and without prompts? So prompts are just things like, I went to a restaurant yesterday and it was nice or something. And then so that allows people to think about, okay, I went to a restaurant, what would be, some sentiment-laden thing I would say about this restaurant, right? And so what we found is that if you give people a prompt, then they generate better examples and they're, they're more efficient. And so I think one of the, the key challenges, and that's also one of the things I've been working on, is how can we empower annotators in this process, right? So it's a, like I said, it's a creative process and giving them a prompt is one way to do it, but maybe we can even 
generate synthetic examples already where if we have a passage, maybe we can try to generate a question that could already fool the model, right? So we can do this synthetically. And uh, the, the benefit of doing that would be to bring the cost down. So one of the downsides of this is that you have to, it's a harder task for Turkers, so you have to pay them more. If you only care about model fooling examples, then you have to pay a lot more per model fooling example as the model gets better over time. So what, what we're trying to do is bring that cost down and, and try to see if there are creative ways to, uh, to make this process better. Yeah, these are all really exciting directions. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're working on this. <laughs> I, I do have a question about, I'm curious, like, do you, do you see any high-level differences in the kinds of data that you would get when using prompts to create entirely new inputs versus the minimal like counterfactual editing method that you described? We didn't really compare those head-to-head. I think that would be an interesting experiment. So, I mean, a prompt, like what you could do is allow people to copy the prompt and then make edits on it. And then you get very mm-hmm. close to the, the minimum edit style, right? But what we, what we did with sentiment was just show them the prompt and then they type their example from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. So we didn't actually look at, at this in a controlled setting. But uh, so what I would expect is that, so if you don't give them any prompt, they will try to, because they're in a certain mode of operation, right? So they're, maybe they're, if these are Turkers, they're thinking about something. So a lot of their examples will be about the thing they're thinking about. So they will be a lot less diverse than if you have prompts where you can steer them in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what would be interesting to see is how much, how, I guess, like the relationship between the diversity of the prompts, like or the, the diversity of the data points, like you were saying, is influenced by the prompts versus like the minimal distance between the data points and that influencing like improvements over robustness and things like that because it seems like they're somewhat at odds with each other and maybe would improve different parts of model performance yeah that would be super interesting i I also think there's a lot of opportunities here for further gamification so one of the things we have on the platform is you can earn badges by doing a good job and like you can be the, the the number one model fooler and things like that and over time, we can go to, uh, to like, if people want to run a task, like, like you said, where you have minimal edits, you can give them a reward if they can find like the smallest edit possible to fool the model, right? So then you can really incentivize them for the, the particular thing that you're looking for. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that could be cool. Great. I recently read your uh, paper that got accepted at NACL21, uh, Introducing Dynabench. And... So one part of the paper that I thought was very interesting was uh, you listed all the potential uh, caveats and objections to adversarial data collection and dynamic benchmarks, and you tried to answer answer them. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I wanted to talk about um, your the potential objection you talked about regarding distributional shifts in greater detail. So I understand that the concern regarding distributional shifts is uh, that as you keep collecting data sets in an adversarial fashion, it might happen that uh, the new newly collected data sets uh, are distributionally different from the original data sets, correct? Do you know if it does happen? And I guess I guess even before we talk about that, is it if it does happen, is it really a problem? What's your take on that? Yeah, so it does happen to a certain extent, I think. So just the questions get maybe slightly less natural. And so, you know, that could be a problem. But I think there are also solutions to this, like, like I said, where you mix the data so that you can also stay good on the other data sets that you care about. So I, I don't actually think that it's a problem. I think what we should be optimizing for is just being good on all kinds of different test sets. And the more we can be good on uh, and score well on, the better we are doing in general. So, but I, I think the specific risk that people see with this approach 
And I think that's, a, that's justified is that if you do what you said earlier, where you have the same model in the loop and you do this over lots of different rounds and it's always this particular one model, then you really pull the distribution very far away maybe from uh, what naturally happens. So then in a sense, after a while, you can start asking like, what are we really measuring here, right? And I think, and that's also one of the things we're, we're trying to do with Dynabench is, is it doesn't have to be adversarial, right? So Dynaboard, which we'll talk about later, doesn't just have adversarial test sets in it. It also has static test sets in, in it. So we also want to make sure we're good on SNLI and multi-NLI. And we also want to make sure that we're not just good at accuracy, but also other stuff. So the way Dynabench is set up, in, in my mind at least, is a scientific experiment to make things dynamic. And so it could be adversarial. It could also be collaborative. It could be a negotiation. It could be whatever we want it to be as a research community. Because the nice thing about this is that if we decide we want to do something else, we can. Right? We can just change it. And so uh, and the fact that it's owned by the research community and there are task owners who have control over what they want to do is they can change whatever they want. So I'm looking forward to the first non-adversarial Dynabench task. Cool. It seems to me that uh, one potential issue here is that the task definitions are underspecified. So if you say that you're building a question-answering data set, and uh, say, for example, you're building an adversarial question-answering data set, and you start from a model that's trained on squad, and right, I mean, say if you ask questions that involve uh, numerical reasoning, you don't expect the squad model to be able to answer those things, right? And or if you uh, ask questions that involve a lot of uh, common sense reasoning, you don't expect uh, squad models to be able to answer these questions. And right, so uh, we would right, like, so, we would like them to be able to do that, right? So we don't expect them to be able to do that, but in the long term, if we collect lots of data that has very difficult numerical reasoning examples, and we add those to the training data and we add them to the test data to incentivize people to fix these issues, then over time, as a living benchmark, we will address these issues, right? So if we really start caring about numerical reasoning, we should put that in our models. Right, so that's the point I wanted to talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure if we do want that, right? I mean, because we expect something from a squad trained model that it uh, would be good at identifying the predicate argument structures in, uh, in sentences. And if you have, uh, if you have, say, a sentence like uh, person X did Y, and if you ask a question like who did Y, uh, that, that's like a minimum test of uh, understanding predicate argument structures, right? And that's what I would expect from a squad brain model. Yeah, but what I, would, uh, what I would want from a QA model is something that can answer questions. So like, I don't like a, a squad model. I, I want to have a QA model that can solve any question anyone has, right? So the task is not squad. The task is extractive QA. And so th this could even be used in like open domain QA settings where you also have a retriever, right? We want to solve the real problem, not the fake problem, right? So if we want to be good at QA, we should be able to do these things. Let me push you a bit more on that. So I'm not entirely convinced still. I mean, what exactly is question answering? I mean, I could say, ask a question, I mean, read a passage and then ask a question that's extremely difficult, which only some people in the world can answer, say, something that involves, I don't know, the knowledge of quantum physics or something. And I don't know if I can even ask such a question from a squad paragraph, but let's say, let's, let's, talk, let's assume that that's possible. Then, right, so why exactly do we need our models to be answering such questions, right? I mean, the whole point of uh, squad-like uh, benchmarks is to 
assess whether the models have basic natural language understanding skills. It's not necessarily to build systems that answer question, whatever question you have, right? I mean, I don't know. So that depends on what, how you think about squad, right? So if, if squad is meant to measure, so if it's only about measuring NLU and it's not really about QA, but QA is sort of just a proxy for NLU, then I guess you do have a point, right? That you maybe want to stop somewhere. But then I, I think what you're really saying then is that the passages should be so self-contained that they do not require any external knowledge, right? Uh, and uh, so, because then you can really just use it to assess natural language understanding and nothing else as a self-contained thing. So I, I don't think that's what is really set up that way, right? Maybe that was one of the, the intentions, but I think there is a lot of common sense that you need in these models. And I think the more you start going towards this setting where, where models are used by real people, the more people are going to expect it to be able to do certain things based on common sense knowledge, right? So like in my past life, when I did my PhD thesis, I, I had, had this paper on olfactory semantics, so uh, smell, and we build a, a bag of chemical compounds model to show that you can, represent word, you can represent words in olfactory space and that that space is actually very close to how humans think about similarity judgments. And so I think that's very interesting because there are just certain concepts that we talk about all the time where we assume that everyone knows what we mean, but we never spell it out completely. So you can test this for yourself by trying to describe the smell of coffee. I think everybody understands what coffee smells like, and I know that you know, so I never have to explain it. So a system is never going to be able to learn this from text anyway, right? So that's why we need to in invest in things like the being grounded and being multi-agent and, and all of the other interesting research directions that exist in NLP, I think. And so in, in order to measure our progress on that longer research vision, I think we also need harder benchmarks. And that's one of the things I'm trying to achieve with Dynabank. I have a sort of follow-up question to this discussion, which is it seems like you know, there's this implicit idea in Dynabank that we should expand the notion of a task to beyond just a data set. Like squad style means extractive QA, not the squad data set. So I'm curious if, if it's also a goal to, in these more comprehensive evaluation data sets, bridge existing data sets, I guess. So like in sort of like the unified QA style where you have, where you're trying to create now a QA, extractive QA task, or QA task more broadly that is getting all the QA existing data sets and not and building an adversarial data set on top of all of this existing data is that something that you've thought about yeah so so that's what one of the things we're trying to do with dynaboard so that's supposed to be an evaluation as a service platform where we have all kinds of different evaluation data sets that we test models on and yeah so so we we want to be able to see how good models do on all of these data sets and if you do well on all of them then you are good at qa so i think this actually is also what we're doing Anyway, if you look at things like the MRQA workshop, right, where we have, I think, 12 different tasks. And, and so if you want to win that, then you have to be good on all of them. So as more data sets come out in our field, we should start thinking more about the task and less about the data set itself. I, I think so. Yeah. I see. I jumped again a little bit on Dynaboard, but we'll talk about that soon, I guess. Okay, so one point you made about uh, the distinction between tasks and data sets earlier is that. Uh, when you're building a question answering model, you should be able to answer questions that uh, real people would ask uh, if you deployed the model in production and not just uh, uh, answer the kinds of questions that are in the data set that, that the model is trained on. I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
But then if you're asking humans to be adversarial about it and just find questions that a model cannot answer, are you really arriving at the same distribution as uh, the questions that you would get if you asked real users in production to use it? Yeah, so that, that is basically the, the same distributional shift question, right? So I think that depends. I, I also think that when we... So it's not that all adversarial examples are unnatural, right? If we think that, we're probably overestimating our model's capabilities. So I think it's very doable to find natural-looking uh, examples that are completely normal questions that the model still gets wrong. So I think, like I said, we want to be able to do both, right? So we want the average case, which is what we're measuring, especially with these huge data sets. But it's also very narrow, like squad is only Wikipedia context. It's of a very specific length and like domain and stuff like that, right? So we need to be able to go beyond that over time. And we need to be more robust also to the worst case, because ultimately that's uh, what's going to matter when we deploy these systems for real. Do you have any ideas on how you can estimate whether... Uh, a given question is something that a real user would ask. I, I know this is kind of a very open question, but uh, do you have any thoughts there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, right? I, I mean, so I think there's a, lots of interesting analysis to be done there, even by like looking at parse tree depth of a, a hypothesis in AMLI, right? Like maybe that's just very complex from a syntactic perspective compared to like the SNLI dataset. It probably is just because it's longer, right? But uh, so I think you can look at like Fleiss, Kincaid, readability score, things like that. Uh, you can give them to real humans and see how long they take. So yeah, I think there's lots of ways to do that. But I don't know of any work that really only looks at that particular question. Yeah, I think this is a, this could be a very interesting direction to explore. Yeah, thanks. I had not thought about that. Okay, we talked uh, about Dynabot a couple of times, given that we don't have a lot of time left. Let's talk more about Dynabot. Yeah, so I understand that Dynabot is a, a model evaluation as a service platform. And I see that there are a couple of really exciting features uh, in Dynabot, including assigning a single dynamic score uh, with uh, weights based on uh, various performance measures. Let's talk more about that. Can What problems with the current evaluation frameworks does uh, Dynabot fix and how? So I mean, maybe it's actually useful to just start with where it comes from in my mind, right? So the real reason I wanted to have these models or wanted to have access to these models is because when new rounds of Dynabench come out, we need to have a way to reevaluate old models. And so over time, that becomes very difficult to do as a field, right? So one of the main objections against Dynabench is that as new rounds come out, you lose track of where we are. So one very elegant way to fix that is to uh, allow people to upload their models. And then those models are on the leaderboard, which means we can always take the top model on the leaderboard and put that in the loop to make sure that we're always collecting against the current state of the art. And as new rounds come out, or even as we come up with new metrics or new ways of thinking about things, we can reevaluate the models using these new methods. So this is the sort of flexibility and dynamicity that we want to achieve with this platform, right? Make everything dynamic. And so Dynabench, it started as this model in the loop thing, but now it's going to towards also making uh, other aspects of this dynamic. But so the, the things that it, it fixes as a consequence of this are also things that are, have also already been fixed by other platforms like Eval AI and Dawnbench and, and lots of different other evaluation platforms, which is that you can have better reproducibility if you guarantee that all models are evaluated exactly the same way. So by having people upload models, we can make sure that we compute the 
blue score, for example, in exactly the same way, right? Which used to be a problem in NT where people had their own blue score implementation. So uh, there were issues with that. So uh, that's just one example. And one of the things that I really care about with this is also just accessibility. So when people upload models and they're on the leaderboard, one of the, the cool things we can do with Dynavage is we can allow people to talk to these models on the leaderboard. So rather than having to go to Hugging Face Transformers, download this on your machine, needing a couple of GPUs, all of this stuff, like it will take you a couple of hours to get this set up. And that's for us, right? And we are technical people, but you can't do that to, to a random person who doesn't have any technical skills. So one of the things that we can improve here is we can democratize uh, model evaluation by allowing anyone to talk to any model so that anyone who's maybe afraid of AI or who wants to know more can just go and talk to these models and really see like, oh, AI is really great, but actually it's also still quite easy to fool if you try. So for making people think more deeply about AI in general. And then the, the other thing or the other issue that we have in NLP is that we've been very leaderboard focused where we have this static ranking. So there's just one ranking function, for example, accuracy, and that determines the rank on the leaderboard. And the number one is, is the cool team and everybody else uh, isn't cool. And like everybody really cares about these leaderboards and that creates very bad incentives in the long term for numerous reasons. So, so one thing is just that we don't only care about one metric. So we should be multi-metric. We don't want to just have a good model. We want to have a, a model that is actually useful so it has to be reasonably fast. We want it to be robust and we want it to be fair. So if, if it works for James, it should also work for Jamal. And this is the sort of stuff that we're not measuring explicitly and I think we should. So that's what we're trying to achieve with this. And then the other uh, flip side of, of having multiple metrics is that people can determine for themselves what they care about. So they have a different utility function. Uh, so there's a, a very nice paper from uh, Kawin Etaraj. Utility is in the eye of the user, a critique of NLP leaderboards, where he makes this point very elegantly that people just have different preferences. So an IoT engineer cares about compute much more than an academic who just wants to maximize accuracy. And if you're in a, in a real production scenario, maybe you should care a lot more about fairness than maybe in other settings, right? So these sort of trade-offs is what we want to be able to capture. So what we allow people to do it, uh, with this Dynaboard is to specify their own utility function. So they can specify how much they care about certain things, and this determines the ranking so that they can select the model that really is best for their use case. That's great. Yeah, I think these are really exciting features, particularly the, the idea of uh, incorporating utility uh, into a leaderboard. It makes a lot of sense to me. Can you tell me a bit? Can you explain a little bit about how exactly this uh, incorporation of utility and computing the dinosaur works? Yeah, so, so the basic idea is that everyone has a different utility function. And so the, the metrics we have are performance or accuracy-based performance metrics, throughput or compute, memory, robustness, and fairness. And then we treat these as, as sort of goods. So we're, we're taking some ideas from microeconomics where we're saying, okay, you have certain utils or uh, so like a value assignment for certain goods, certain metrics, things you care about. And these ultimately determine for you how much you value something, right? So how much it is worth to you. And uh, what that means is that you can think of this as trade-offs or exchange rates where uh, you can trade off your compute versus your accuracy. So if you want to be very efficient, you are probably not going to be as accurate. Or if you want to be very, the same sort of thing, if you want to be very fair, then you're probably also going to have to expend more compute just on achieving this fairness. Right? So those are the, the trade-offs that model creators make 
when they design these models. And what you can do is, is analyze these and, and look at the indifference curves that come out of this. So the indifference curve is really like how are people on average trading certain things off against each other? So an example could be like if I have five apples and you want to give me 10 bananas for it, maybe that's a good deal for me, but then I don't have any apples anymore. So there is a sort of optimum there in, in how much I want to trade off apples for bananas in a way where I want to maximize my own utility uh, with respect to these goods. So if you look at how, how model creators are trading these things off, what you can get is the uh, average marginal rate of substitution. So how much are people willing to trade these off against each other? And in a sense, that's just a normalization function, right? So, so there are different ways you can do this, but I think this is a particularly elegant way of thinking about it. And then what our users can do is they can specify the weights that they want to assign to these exchange rates. So there's the default exchange rate that comes out of how model creators behave on the leaderboard. And then if you as a user disagree with that default weighting, then you can specify the weights yourself. And the other important thing to note is that the default weights, as they appear on the leaderboards, those are specified again by the task owners, right? So uh, as a platform, we don't want to make any, any sort of explicit judgment on, on what should be the case. And, and maybe one of the things that will happen here is that, that leaderboards will fork over time or different default settings will become popular where you could have like an accuracy only QA leaderboard or like a fairness first uh, leaderboard, that sort of stuff. So to put things in more concrete terms, just to see if I understood what you said correctly, let's say I'm a user who is trying to determine which model I want from a leaderboard or, or, or a dynaboard of uh, squad models. Let's say there are 10 different models and I know the accuracy of each of those models and uh, say the throughput or the latency of each of those models. How exactly do I determine what the ratio should be uh, between throughput and performance? Is it just based on my use case? It is based on your use case, yeah. So what you would do in this case is you would go to Dynabench.org, you would go to the leaderboard, uh, you would click on the, the slider icon and you would slide the weights so that you can get the ranking that, that you're uh, looking for. So if you really care about throughput, the default value for this is one out of five, you can set that to five uh, and then this will, will re-rank it accordingly. Okay, cool. Yeah, makes sense. This, so this sounds great both from a user perspective, if I'm trying to pick the best model, but also from a research perspective, it sounds like it would make it a lot easier to compare methods like across if I want a, a more efficient method or something like that. So I guess I have a question about this kind of research use case. Is there any room to also have metrics for like various training dimensions, such as like the amount of data used to train a particular model or training time or something like that? I think memory and compute you mentioned are part of these metrics and kind of get at that. But I was wondering if there's room for more metrics like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so again, one of the cool things of this platform is that it's dynamic, so we can always add more metrics later, right? So, but training would be a bit tricky because we're not actually training the models here. We're just doing inference. So we could incorporate that metric by asking people to fill this out, right? So all of the models that are on the platform, they also have model cards and things like that. And in a model card, you would specify like how, how long did it take you to train or how did you train it on how much data, that sort of stuff. So you could extract it from there or make it, in the, make it an explicit variable and then represent it in the leaderboard. But then you, then you have more reproducibility issues because people self-report, right? And one of the issues with self-reporting is that people lie. And so one of the cool things actually about this is that, so we have 
a couple of these metrics on the leaderboard for a couple of data sets, but we evaluate on all kinds of different data sets. So one of the issues with reproducibility, I think that I've seen at least it happen in the wild is where people show their out of domain, like analyze stress test numbers on a different model than the one they report their accuracy for, right? So basically they, they cherry pick results. And that is something that can no longer be done in this framework. So like we, the same model goes through all of the tests. Uh, so we have guarantees there that things can be trusted. Is it, would it be easy to add uh, new performance measures to Dynabot as well? Is that the plan? So one of the things that's maybe worth mentioning is what, so we have a robustness and a, and a fairness metric, but I don't think that there are really well-established ways in the field to measure those yet. So we take a particular approach where we have perturbations and we look at whether a fairness perturbation affects your ultimate prediction. Right? So if I change the gender of a sentence, do I suddenly predict something else? Because if that is the case, if the gender doesn't actually impact the prediction, that shouldn't happen. Right? So going back to like, if I replace James with Jamal, that shouldn't affect the prediction if the prediction is not about that. So we acknowledge very explicitly in the paper and on, on the website itself that those are imperfect metrics because we just don't know how to do better yet. And one of the real hopes is for the field to come up with better metrics so that we can incorporate them. So yeah, because we're dynamic, we can. So we're really hoping that people come up with more established black box fairness evaluation methods that we can then incorporate. So people can just contribute the code or, or tell us how to do it and, and that will happen. So I understand that you're essentially opening this up to public, right? I mean, when you're uh, I mean, essentially anyone will be able to add uh, new tasks and new models, right? Yeah. So the first step was to just get the platform for four tasks working, uh, collect data for those four tasks, then open up the model evaluation part. So that's where we are now, where we have this this very cool Dynaboard thing. And the next thing in the, the longer term roadmap is what I've been calling DynaTask. Uh, which is for everyone to be able to have their own dynamic task and to grow it beyond that. So we have a couple of exciting new tasks in the in the pipeline, including uh, adversarial visual question answering, for example. But yeah, so ultimately, because we've made all of this cool stuff, we want to share it with the world and, and make sure everyone can use it. Yeah, I think that's a great service to the community. Thanks a lot for doing this. So, right, I mean, related to that, right, I mean, if how does this... How do you expect this would scale? Uh, so if people kept adding new tasks and new models, I mean, would, I guess who pays for the storage and the compute of these models? How would that work? So I, I really hope uh, that that will become a problem I have to solve because that means that the platform is very <laughs> successful, right? <laughs> I think there are lots of good ways to solve it, right? I mean, so right now, uh, Facebook is paying for, for this and I think they would happily keep paying for this until it becomes really huge. But uh, I mean, there are, there are established examples uh, here. Uh, you can uh, think about ML Commons, for example, which runs the ML Perf benchmark. So that's just sponsored by, by a consortium of industry partners. So something like that could happen here too. I mean, one of the, the ways that this project could graduate is if it becomes owned by something like ACL or, or something like that, and, and not just by a single corporate entity. Great, thanks. That's pretty much all the questions I had for you. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? Uh, not really. I, yeah, I think I, I, I got through most of the things I wanted to say. So thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.